these are the elements that are highlighted in the history of God's people. Who they are, who God is, what He has done to supply salvation, how falling short yields His correction, and how unbelievers face His judgment. History is recorded according to these milestones or landmarks in history, as we've said, as a philosophy for understanding the record of human affairs so that we might measure progress of the human experience measurable according to the ultimate standard of the author and finisher of history, God Himself. So would you stand with me with your scriptures open and let us consider these last words from Psalm 78, this great psalm of Asaph, together. Again, listen as the word is proclaimed, beginning in verse 56. This is the word of God. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked Him to anger. With their high places, they moved Him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, He was full of wrath, and He utterly rejected Israel. He forsake his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and the women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. Verse 70, he chose David his servant. And took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of God. You may be seated. (coughs) As we follow the historical record of the dealings of God with his people, Featured in Asaph's psalm, we have now moved from the wilderness to the promised land. So if you follow the progression of events, our text last week, we were recounting how God delivered, following Asaph's lead, how God delivered His people in Egypt. It says, verse 43, He performed signs in Egypt, His marvels in the fields of Zoan, which is a plain in that region where Pharaoh was shocked and uh, moved to surrender as God turned rivers to blood, caused swarms of flies and frogs and locusts and hail, destroyed the firstborn and so on. So this was happening while Israel was in its late stages of captivity on the verge of Exodus. And then verse 52 proceeds to document a few landmarks of redemptive history as His people are led out like sheep and guided in the wilderness like a flock. It says the Lord leads them in safety. But of course, as they cross the Red Sea, that same sea overwhelms their enemies. Record in verse 53. Talks about dispossession of the pagan nations and possession of Canaan. In verse 55, He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them 
for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. And now we proceed with the habitation of the land itself. How did the people live after they had received this great blessing from the Lord? This generation that had rebelled, by and large, many of them, most of them had died in the wilderness. Then a second generation following Josh after those 40 years of disciplinary wandering crossed the threshold of Canaan and again God's works are featured. As the priests enter into the Jordan with the tabernacle, which is featured in our text today, and by the power of God's presence represented in that action of obedience to Him, He shows His sovereignty over the elements and moves the waters apart at flood stage, just like He had done at the Red Sea, and the people cross into the Promised Land. Also, God had revealed His power to tear down the highest and most um, impressive fortresses that man had built in the region. Jericho comes to mind as a word uh, spoken through his people, blasted forth from the trumpets of the worshipers, destroys that wall and it crumbles and only one family is saved, Rahab and her kin. These are the events that are in mind right now. But shocking, juxtaposed in light of this great power of God to conquer and to provide for them houses to live in, an abundance of fruit, a land flowing with milk and honey, In stark contrast to all this, we find their attitude is shockingly similar to what it was in the wilderness. Verse 56, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His commandments. We learn quickly from the inspired historiography of Psalms, uh, Psalm 78 and the rest of the Psalms that blessings and comfort can yield complacency and rebellion just as easily easily as trying providences can move a people toward resentment and rebellion. We are weak individuals, to be sure. If we're going through trying providences and difficult trial, oftentimes we will rebel, motivated in our humanity and frailty by resentment. But we might think, everything will be better now, and I can worship the Lord without distraction. If He would just answer my prayers and greatly, richly bless me, we find the record of God's people. That this was not the case, it wasn't just a given. That once life was easier and once they were provide, their needs were provided and God had conquered their enemies, that they would just worship the Lord, some kind of utopian redeemed state. No, they still contended with their flesh. The blessings and comfort of Canaan yielded complacency in their hearts. So what is the antidote? It seems like it's a lose-lose situation, right? If you look at the record of history, if people are in trial, they tend to resent the Lord. If they're in blessing, they tend to grow complacent and lazy and worship idols. What's the antidote? Well, Asaph has given us the antidote all through these scriptures. And so again, I remind you at the beginning of this psalm, incline your ear to the words of the wise teacher's mouth who draws our attention to the dark sayings of old, who reminds us that the most important events in our consciousness are not our experience, but instead what God has done throughout history to reveal Himself and to save His people. These are the things to tell to the coming generation. So that whether in trial or blessing, they may not grow resentful and complacent and resort to idolatry. After all, we find in verse 5 that God has established a testimony in Jacob. He's appointed a law in Israel. And so these works and this word of God must be taught to the children of the next generation. The children yet unborn, that they should set their hope in Him and not forget His works. So this is a fruitful study then of the consequences of God's people do not avail themselves of the means to stand stable and strong 
whether they're in blessing or whether they're experiencing trial. Our sin is a matter of the heart, brothers and sisters. Our sin is a matter of our own hearts. It's not a result, as the world would tell us, or the attitude of unbelief would claim. It's not a result of our environment. Whether blessing or trial, the people still remained in sin when they left to their own resources. Our sin is a matter of our hearts. It's not a matter of our socioeconomic condition, whether we're rich or poor. The world would tell us we need programs to confiscate the wealth of the rich and redistribute to the poor, and that way we won't have as much violence in the inner city because the young men are just lashing out with uh, gun violence in the heart of Chicago because there's not enough good jobs. Well, this is a foolish, uh, this is a foolish thesis indeed in light of what the Scriptures say, whether in trial or in great blessing, our hearts resort to the same sin until that sin is dealt with, where we realize its source, it's in and of ourselves, a matter of our heart, and then we realize that it can only be redeemed through God's sacrifice that He has provided. Uh, again, our sin is not a matter of our oppressed status, a victim complex, or anything otherwise. It's not the fault of our neighbor. It's not the fault of our circumstances, where we are born, our parents, or the society that we live in and around. It's a matter of heart. A fruitful study throughout Old Covenant history, I might suggest to you, we actually did some years ago, I preached a series of messages following the path of the Ark of the Covenant. And as you look at the plight, the position the prominence, the location, you know, what condition is the Ark of the Covenant in? May I submit to you that invariably you can look at the people and their state of spiritual health corresponds to the plight of this symbol of God's presence among them. When the Ark was neglected, their spiritual life was in tatters there because the Ark was that touchstone of connection with the Lord that God had established among them. So when they denied His means, they did not worship Him the way that He had prescribed, then they began to fall apart as a people. When the ark was uh, commandeered by the Philistines, as we'll read some today, then the people were lost and uh, in despair and calamity fell upon them. When the ark was featured in a prominent location, as one of God's servants like David would find it and say, this isn't right, needs to return, then battles would be won, the people would be blessed, victory campaigns were waged, and the society began to be healthy and whole and orderly again. And now it all goes down to where God's presence was in the hearts and the consciousness and the experience of the people. What about the presence of God among us today? What about the means that He has prescribed for us today? the assembly of ourselves together, the value of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. If those things are featured front and center in our life, in our order, and, and they order our affairs, if our attention is drawn to them, if we are quick to confess them, if we love them and study them, then we, conversely, will have grace to overcome, to be victorious over the sins that would otherwise plague us. But if the means that God has prescribed us, our appreciation for the redemption of Jesus Christ. And again, these other means that He supplies, if they go uh, unattended, if, if they are uh, further down our priority list, then we will also fall apart. With the progress of the people of God through the course of their wilderness wanderings and the settlement of Canaan, what it teaches us is when nothing is sacred among the people, they are thrown into absolute spiritual and social chaos. 
when the things of God are not sacred anymore, when they are not hallowed, when they're not appreciated, when the values of the Word of God are not featured and foremost in their thinking and their decisions and the order of their community, then they are thrown into chaos. They are lost. While this condition may be the delusional dream of hedonistic preferences, like in Psalm 2 where the nations rage and say, let us throw off like chains the law of God, what is soon proved to be true is that this state of chaos is the judgment of God upon their own heads. When the Lord leaves us to our own devices, it only reaps judgment, despair, difficulty of beyond anything that we imagine in our misguided, hedonistic, self-centered dreams upon our heads. And thus, perhaps, if God is gracious under these conditions, we might look again for the source of redemption. So let us see, let us note this pattern a little more closely in our text today under this heading, charting the pattern of sovereign discipline. What we're doing here in our text today is we're looking at the redemptive historical landmarks that are identified in Psalm 78. These again, as we mentioned before, are milestones or points of reference in order to understand how God works with His people and in order to have a certain structure of God's design as the author and finisher of all history for where we are even today. So as we look at this pattern of sovereign discipline, I submit to you perhaps three categories come to the fore. First of all, we see that God's favor is rejected by the people in verses 56 through 58. God's favor is rejected. Secondly, we see that God's favor is then removed. So first the people reject or they despise, they turn away, they do not consider hallowed, holy, or valuable, God, the terms of God's favor. They neglect Him. And secondly, God's favor is actively removed. And then thirdly, we see hope and redemption in God's favor returning. And this is something of a pattern, almost a cycle in the course of God's people where He was quick to provide in His steadfast love a merciful path towards repentance that often came on the heels of of people falling away from the Lord, desperately in need of a Savior. So let's consider these categories. God's favor rejected, first of all, verses 56 through 58. It says, again, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. Testimonies is synonymous with law in this context. The people of God, they tested and rebelled against the Most High and just to recall to your attention, not to go into it at depth because we've covered it already, but this choice for the name of God is extremely important. When God as the Most High is identified, it's His character as the highest authority and the ultimate truth and the most powerful source, uh, say in and of Himself, that is to say, complete, self-sufficient, needing no other, and absolutely sovereign over all that He has made. When it is the Most High, that God that is emphasized and is clearly featured in the consciousness of the people, then it is the testing and rebellion of Him that becomes such a foolish and convicting course of action and thought. When we realize God is the Most High God, that He is the Rock, the Sovereign, the Lord of all, the Creator, the Sustainer, the First, the Last, the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, the only wise God, inscrutable in His wisdom. When we realize Him according to how He is portrayed, displayed, made known, revealed in Scripture, then 
Conviction is quick to flood our heart if we should ever rebel against what He has proclaimed or presume to be tempted to test Him. Again, testing God is subjecting Him to scrutiny by employing an ostensibly higher standard. I'm going to test God by this other measure. And the assumption is then that this other measure is something higher than God that God must submit to in order to be justified in our mind. The people were doing this. They were testing Him and they were rebelling against Him. And in this way, they they were rejecting God's favor. But note this. One of the primary motives for the people to reject the favor of God, the terms of His favor, what He had prescribed for worship, the presence of Himself promised with His people when they were obedient to His testimonies, to His law. When this was rejected, one of the primary motives was for favor with others. If we de-emphasize, if we move away from our value of the favor, of our favor with the Lord, If favor with the Lord is not very important to us, it is almost always the case that the reason it is so is because we are seeking favor with others. Our neighbors, the pagan world around us, other kingdoms, people we see as successful, those that we might envy, a covetousness of the position of the rich and prosperous, seemingly so, nations around Israel. That was the source for their wayward affections to terminate on, and suddenly they didn't consider favor with the Lord as important as favor with others. To be like our neighbors, to have what they have, to appreciate the influence that they have, to be fat and, and, and well-clothed and, and have no real worries in this life. That was the tempting allure that drew people away from worshiping the Lord toward worshiping of idols. Seeking favor with other cultures by accommodating their gods. A culture, when, when you enter into or you course, correspond with or you fellowship with another people who are governed by a different set of rules and values than you are, then usually what that means is in order to have favor with them, you have to at least tolerate or accommodate their gods. You have to be okay with them. Now, why do you think the New Testament tells us that it is a virtue, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, to be hated by all people for my name's sake, or be hated by men for my name's sake? It is for this reason. It is because Christ knows, after all, He has declared through the mouth of Asaph, all the way through His new covenant teaching, that to actually stand uncompromisingly in Jesus Christ means that you reject, you oppose you denounce and you deride false gods. And you do not sacrifice favor with the Lord for favor with wicked cultures. That is the price of conformity and ease often in pagan worlds and societies, pagan, in the pagan world and in ungodly societies. That is the price of favor with our world today. It comes at the cost of favor with God. There is a landmark moment that is featured in our text today. As we continue to read, we see that the people of God um, rejected the Lord. And uh, we see a little bit about what was going on. It says, they turned away, verse 57, and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. And let me just uh, cross-reference the landmark or milestone of covenant history 
that is referred to here. Turn with me to the book of Judges, if you would. So, in the book of Judges, the people have experienced the provision of the Lord in defeating their enemies, leading them, of course, out of the wilderness into the promised land. The conquest of Canaan is nearly complete. But then there is a shift. And the record of the judges begins with these ominous details. Verse 8, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And you recall Joshua was a godly leader, and he stood for and pointed the people towards their Lord. But now something, and now there's a shift, and, and we see this happening as the record continues. Verse 9, they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Listen, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is all the consequences that Asaph details for us. There arose a generation after the generation of Joshua had passed on who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How could that be? How could they not know? The people of Israel, verse 11, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. In Deuteronomy Moses had given commandments to the people. He had said, watch yourselves very carefully. He had said, uh, let wisdom and understanding be featured in the sight of the peoples. And when they hear of all these statutes that you abide by and proclaim, they will actually be drawn to have favor with you by renouncing their idols and seeking to have communion with you as a people who are standing without compromise on the Lord your God, by keeping His dictates and statutes. Moses says, and what great nation is there? Um, Kind of personifying a a nation who would be in awe at how orderly and blessed Israel was at this time. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? But then there's this warning, this exhortation, verse 9, of Deuteronomy 4, only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget. Moses was very keen on these instructions. He goes on in Deuteronomy 6 to say that you shall teach the precepts of the Lord. Teach them diligently to your children. Verse 7, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So that which you purpose to do in your actions, so that which you meditate upon in your intellect. The word of God is to be featured in all of these areas of life. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so your dwelling should revolve around the word of God. Now this is what, this is the missing element that caused the people in Judges chapter 2 to forget. 
because they did not do as Moses and Joshua had commanded. Asaph records the fallout of the next generation. He had established a testimony in Jacob, but they had not told the children yet unborn. They had not arisen to tell the next generation. And as the book of Judges unfolds, it is a record of the futility, the fallout, and the travesty of failing to be obedient to God in communicating to the next generation His great works. The book itself closes in Judges 21-25 by saying, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then the people uh, later begin to cry out for a king like their neighbors. But gloriously, in the record of redemption, the next book in the canon is Ruth. And there we have the record of a kinsman redeemer. On the heels of all this generational fallout of the judges, a kinsman redeemer is raised up in Boaz. And the son of that union between Ruth and Boaz ends up in the lineage of Christ himself. And so God's favor returns, and this is the picture. Even though God's favor is rejected by the people, and it yields this temporal and for many individuals eternal judgment, there is hope on the horizon. There's an illustration to describe this situation that might be interesting to note in our text today. It says in verse 57, They turned away, again in Psalm 78, and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. I wonder if anyone has any idea what this might mean. I certainly asked that question in my study. There's a cross-reference that's helpful in Hosea. I don't need to turn there necessarily, but let me read you two verses. In chapter 7, 15, and 16, Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. They return, but not upward, and they are like a treacherous bow. A same term there, translated a little different, I believe same Hebrew word, like a deceitful bow or a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is a, a great cross-reference because it illustrates, or it's a little, it further expounds this illustration of a deceitful or treacherous bow, but it also turns the tables, um, uh, turns the table of the of the experience of the people, so that Egypt, which was once associated with God's triumphal victory in leading them out, now becomes a source of mockery and derision. In other words, the people turn things upside down. They reversed their fortunes when they were unfaithful. The Lord had trained them. He had given them His law and His statutes. He had equipped them with a knowledge to teach to the next generation the glorious works of the Lord. He had strengthened their arms against their enemies. We see this in Hosea 7.15. But how did they use that relative prosperity, their position in the new land, and their weapons, and their influence, and so on? They devised evil against him. Again, the complacency and the provisions led to rebellion against the Lord. And this is the idea of a treacherous bow. A bow is an implement of war, of course, and it has strong limbs. A bow must be strong. David says, you have given me a shield of victory. My enemies fall at my feet. You train my fingers for battle. I can bend a bow of bronze. These images of shield and bow or a bow of bronze indicate the strength of a weapon of war because those arms are taut when strung, you know, just right, when the arrow is knocked and when it's pulled back, it supplies the force to multiply the power 
of the warrior over his foe. But imagine if that, bow's, if that bow was reversed in his hands, where you go uh, to pull the bow back, and that arrow, instead of flying forward, which has been the case in the experience of the warrior, every a million and two times he shot it, all of a sudden the arrow just shoots straight back into his chest. And he's thinking, my trusty bow has never let me down. This deceitful weapon has turned itself on me. The tool that I have carefully honed and mastered and is, is a, 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 for the specific purpose has all of a sudden been turned on me. And this is the idea. God had blessed His people, honed His people, trained His people, conditioned them, and disciplined them. And they used the great benefits of their relationship with Him against Him. They turned on Him like a deceitful bow. They were called to show forth His glory, to be a tool in His hand, to continue to fight against the Lord's enemies and to be on His side. But they had double-crossed Him. They had given themselves over to the enemy. They were now a tool uh, in at like, kind of like a double agent, a spy for the enemy. They, their closeness to the Lord was now exploited by their enemies to defeat God's purposes um, because of their deceit and treachery. So this is the idea as the people reject God's favor. There are characteristics of the Lord that are then featured under these conditions. We've read of them before. Let us uh, see them in review in verse 58. It says, They provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. So when the people reject the favor of the Lord, when they are a tool against him, <clears throat> they become a tool against him instead of a tool in his hands. This brings out characteristics of the Lord, like his anger and his jealousy. This idea of provoke, we covered it last week. Let me reiterate. What does it mean to provoke the Lord? Does it just mean to tease him and to poke him until finally he gets so exasperated, like we would, that he just reaches out blindly and slaps you? No, it's, it's not the, that's not the idea, may I submit. The idea of making God mad or provoking him is more judicial than that. What if you put the Lord, or what is it to put the Lord into a position where to defend His honor, He must prosecute you? This is what it means to provoke the Lord. In order to defend the honor of the, uh, His honor and His glory, He must prosecute you. So if you are out there uttering blasphemy, your words must be proven wrong for the Lord to defend His glory, and He will. He will never be mocked. If you are out there worshiping an idol saying, ah, maybe this God, you know, Ra, something is really in charge of the sun. The Egypts might have had a, a few, you know, some insight into this area of cosmology. Well, now for the Lord to demonstrate that by His spoken word, the universe exists and was created, He must defeat God, Ra, and so He does, sending darkness on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh provoked the Lord in the hardness of his heart. And each time he did, the Lord defended his honor by prosecuting him. And bringing plagues that showed that his ideas and his values and his gods were foolish. And when people reject the favor of the Lord for favor with his enemies, they provoke him. They put him in the position where defending his glory means he must prosecute them. Also, the characteristic of jealousy, and this is 
the idea of pro- provocation and anger, but there's also a, jealous, a jealousy involved. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. We won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 11, Paul identifies with this jealousy. He says that he is jealous for the church because he had betrothed them to one bridegroom, but now they had been unfaithful, and they were seeking relationships, and in so doing, they were committing spiritual adultery against the Lord who had bought them and preserved them. Everyone who's married or anyone who has an idea of the biblical and the concept, the beautiful truth of marriage, understands that the terms of that covenant are specific. And when they are established and secure, the the husband and the wife are faithful to one another. They share in an experience exclusive to that relationship. And if they loved everyone else like they loved each other, it would not be virtuous, it would be a great sin, it would be adultery, it would be perverse. And this is the picture that God gives for us to understand our relationship with Him. If we look to other sources in life for equally, for provision, for protection, for hope, for comfort, for, to fix our attention, our affections upon, then we become unfaithful in our covenant relationship with the Lord. And again, this is to provoke Him to jealousy. God is not jealous because He's some uh, self-centered egotist the way we might think of a jealous individual or something like that. God is jealous because He loves us exclusively and particularly. If you purchase someone's life at the cost of your own son, what would you, how would you feel if that individual took that greatest of gifts so for granted that he spit in your face? This is the idea of provocation to jealousy. God has given us His own son to die upon Calvary's tree the cruel, shameful death of execution by Roman cross. How much do we appreciate that act of love? And if we despise it, if we belittle it, if we take it for granted, it is to commit, in a sense, spiritual adultery against the Lord who paid the highest price to buy us and to secure that relationship. So this is the context, and this is the idea behind this poetry here. When God's favor is rejected. Let us look at the next stage. We're again charting the redemptive historical landmarks identified in Psalm 78 and noting a pattern of sovereign discipline. First, God's favor is rejected. Secondly, God's favor is removed. Verse 59, when God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. That's our middle passage here, God's favor removed. The landmark event that is in view here is in 1 Samuel 4. Turn there with me for a moment. This uh, language of Shiloh and Zion and, and so on, as we see the contrast with Zion, verse 68, is a reference to the dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant at this time in Israel's history that 1 Samuel 4 records. The Lord removed, it says, again in our text, Verse 61, he delivered his power and his glory into the hand of the foe. What does this refer to? And what events took place at Shiloh that actually represented a removal of God's favor 
from among the people actively by his hand. Well, <clears throat> the events unfold in verse uh, 3, 1 Samuel 4, we'll pick up there. The troops came to the camp and the elders of Israel said, Why has God defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of God here from where? Shiloh. That it may become among us, or that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. Let's just pause there a moment. Uh, oh yeah, we have the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe that will work. There is a self-serving exception to what has otherwise been a total forgetting and neglectful attitude towards God's presence among them that we see here. Do you think God is pleased where the people wait until they're really, really scared and in trouble and then they turn to Him and think about Him? Or does God seek a relationship with His people where, whether in trial or in prosperity, He is foremost in their affections? The people said, oh, the ark might be convenient for us right now, even though we've neglected the worship and it's in relative obscurity in Shiloh, bring it out. Maybe that will be our magic charm. Maybe that will bless our efforts and will defeat our enemies like a, like a superpower. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh, they brought the ark up. Uh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And I love that phrase. This is the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Were they visiting that throne humbly and worshiping the Lord between the cherubim? Or had they totally forgot him? And now they're out messing around, getting into trouble with their enemies, distracted by idols, neglecting the worship of the Lord, and wreaking great havoc across their land. The second is the case. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Okay, so now let's get the priests engaged here. Verse 5, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting mean in the camp of the Hebrews? Um, and when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us? From the power of these mighty gods, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Notice this, amazing contrast. The Philistines were closer to following Asaph's instructions than the Hebrews were. When they heard the Ark of the Covenant is coming, they immediately remembered this was a place, it was the seat of God's authority on earth, and this God defeated their enemies years and years ago by overcoming it's empirical forces of Pharaoh by plagues that ravaged the land. So I ask you, who, who had more fear of God in this moment? The Philistines or the Israelites that said, let's try the ark. Maybe that good luck charm will give us victory. Yeah, bring it out, bring it out. Last ditch effort. Is God our last resort to save us from some uh, temporal or felt emergency? Or is God a God who is appreciated in reverence and fear continually in the hearts of His people? That's the question that's really featured here. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. They're trying to give each other a pep talk in the locker room, as it were, right before they go to battle with the armies. 
Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. They're like, basically, what do we have to lose? We might as well go out there and try to defeat these guys. As they have been to you, be men and fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And note this devastating uh, detail in the record. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Death of the priests, the capture of the ark, the defeat of their enemies. God had removed his presence from the people. And this was a landmark of judgment that Asaph emphasized. He did not want the people to forget the consequences of neglecting the Lord's presence among them. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. Uh, This is poetic language describing these moments we just read in 1 Samuel. Verse 60 of Psalm 78, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. God, as it were, was dwelling with the Ark of the Covenant and thrown down those cherubim in Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity. The Lord actually subjected the seat of his presence to the captivity of the Philistines, his glory to the hand of the foe. And he gave his people over to the sword. Remember, 30,000 died that day. He vented his wrath on his heritage. As we continue, there's another poetic illustration Notice this in verses 63 and 64. This to illustrate the devastating effects of God's presence removed from the people. Fire devoured their their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. This is a poetic description of utter cultural devastation. Note at least four elements of culture that are detailed here. Weddings, music, worship, and dignified burials, funerals. Weddings, music, worship, and dignified burials. All these things collapsed. This was whole-scale, social, cultural, complete devastation. The people's hearts were so broken... And their emotions were so seared. And the PTSD, if you will, of these experiences was so psychologically and spiritually overwhelming that the reality of the horrific tragedy around them, the calamity that assailed them, there came a point where the widows didn't have strength to cry anymore. They heard of another husband die, another husband died, and this is so commonplace that it's as as frequent as the sun rising, men dropping like flies, fire devouring them. When a nation has no more weddings, when there, aren't, when there isn't enough peace and functioning elements and relationships where a wedding song can be heard and venues are you know, scheduling those glorious times, or you could say when those weddings are doomed to fail, or when the weddings that are celebrated are perverse, when the marriages are assaulted, when they are on the rocks in a society, it is a mark, it is a landmark of the Lord's favor, in part at least, being removed. And it should be taken as a sign for judgment. To make this case further, 
And to emphasize that this is a historical landmark to interpret history by, notice Revelation chapter 18. The same language, this devastating cultural fallout, is used to describe the judgment deserving of Babylon, that great city, in Revelation, in John's Revelation, chapter 18, verses 19 through 24. They threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. In a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You notice, in this instance, the saints are in the position with the Lord, such that the provocation of His enemies to defend His glory means He prosecutes them, and we rejoice, the saints and apostles and prophets, if we are in the favor of the Lord, in Christ Jesus, and joining Him in the destruction of His foes. For God has given judgment for you against her, namely against this personification, this quintessential representation of wickedness, Babylon, this great city, the world system, the beast of the day. Verse 21, when the mighty angel took up a stone, a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Listen, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. No more music. When the music goes silent in this city, it marks a judgment of the Lord. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill, so commerce, economy, you know, uh, the trading of goods, and the progress of the people, development of all of these social systems, they're, they're imploding. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the lamp, the light of the lamp, will shine in you no more. Electric grids going down, so to speak, no longer having the resources to shine as a city. The voice of the bridegroom and bride, there's our wedding reference, will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones on the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. And so what does Asaph and John have to teach us, and the record of God's interactions in history? Well, we find that this incident in the life of the Hebrews is not some isolated, unique circumstance. But instead, it's a landmark to judge God's interactions with people by. That is to say, we can expect if sin continues and if the Lord's favor is rejected for favor with the world system, and if God begins to remove His favor and hit, uh, from uh, His people or a nation today, we can expect that His judgment will come in the form of weddings falling apart, of marriages imploding. It will come in the form of economic uh, fear. And where people were once reveling in their riches, proud and arrogant, they will now fear for their next meal. It will come in the form of death being so common that we blink at it now and we don't even grieve. I cannot help but think of abortion in our land as I think about this. In the past, I've said it this way. Sometimes I cry about abortion because I haven't cried enough. How many of us weep over the loss of millions and millions of the innocent little ones among us who never breathe, their lungs never filled with oxygen because the next generation is not only taught the scriptures, but so many of the next generation is slaughtered in the womb and the widows, the, the mothers who have lost their children 
so jaded to the reality of death around them, no longer grieve. And a society no longer mourns the loss of the next generation. Our streets are filled with idiocy as the young people go from pillar to post in their ideas, proclaiming one foolish tenant after another. And they're celebrated as the paragons of, of the virtuous future and the leaders among us who need to be set free to give place to their passions. And now the infantile state of our society welcomes judgment as if it were a blessing. These are the marks of God's favor being removed, at least in part, in a nation who has elevated false gods and has turned from Him. And the message from Psalm 78, all through Scripture, is to learn to identify those landmarks, those reference points, those historical milestones, even in our time, so we can interpret our times according to the terms of the covenant to know where we should stand. Where would you rather stand? Where will you be found? Will you be found rejoicing with the Lord among His saints and elders when His enemies are defeated? Or will you be sucked into the deceptive world system that tells you favor with the world and favor with our culture is worth the cost of favor with the Lord? There is hope in our text today. Praise the Lord and His holy name. It is found in the picture of the Redeemer, prefigured in David, and this is the last portion to which we turn today in Psalm 78, God's favor returning. Let me draw your attention to verse 65 and following. The Lord awoke from sleep, as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and He put His adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Let me pause there. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He rejected the tent of Joseph. So Ephraim, son of Joseph, what is identified here is the place Shiloh was in the uh, territory of Ephraim, and that was where God, the ark of God's presence dwelt. So the picture is here, because my presence and the worship of me was neglected under the stewardship of Ephraim, then it will be removed, and I will choose the tribe of Judah. The tent of Joseph is rejected. It's a picture here where those who did not steward and appreciate the presence of the Lord among them, but God, in, uh, in as much as He is representing the Ark of the Covenant, languished in obscurity in Ephraim, there would now be a removal of their privileges, and it would be given to Judah. Verse 68, But He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which He loves. And now Jerusalem becomes a fixture, a landmark in covenant history. This removal of the ark of God's presence from the unfaithful and then the faithful king restoring it to its rightful place of centrality among the people. And this was David's calling that he fulfilled. Verse 69, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens. So once again, the Lord is elevated in the high place as he ought to be. Once again, in the consciousness, in the worship, in the testimony, the confession, the actions, and the obedience of the people, he is indeed proclaimed as the most high God. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. Verse 70, he chose David his servant from among the sheepfolds, and from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them 
and guided them with his skillful hand. God's favor returns. God's favor returning is marked by covenant, and this is the landmark to which our author refers. In 2 Samuel, let me read you just a couple verses where there is a covenant that God makes with David himself. It's a serious moment. It's a milestone. It's a landmark in history. It's a point of reference for us to interpret the rest of events by. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, we pick up on some of these events. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So this is the instruction Nathan the prophet receives from the Lord to deliver to his servant. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men afflict them no more as formerly from that time I appointed judges over my people. I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will establish a kingdom. He will make a name for David. He will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. Verse 13, I will be to him a father. Verse 14, he shall be to me a son. Even talk, a redemptive language about the Lord's steadfast love. Even when he commits iniquity, he will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was the promise to David. This was the renewal of the covenant. This was the favor of the Lord returning through his servant, through, the, through David, who would one day have a son, where favor with the Lord would ultimately return in the crucifixion and in the satisfied terms of covenant and in the relationship that uh, the son of David, Jesus Christ, now has with his people. Now David was of a different sort than the, the people of Shiloh that, and they were out fighting and they brought up the ark just when it was convenient but they neglected the worship on the off times or in the normal course of, of their life. David was different indeed. We notice this even in our text today. Notice verses 23 and a, and a couple following. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. This is David's praise, his prayer of gratitude to the Lord after having received this knowledge that he would be favored and would be a covenant agent to lead God's people out of the obscurity of sinful neglect and into blessing as the ark is featured central among them again and worship is restored. When David, uh, out of the abundance of his heart, begins to praise the Lord for this promise, he recognizes the works of God through redemptive history. He says, who is greater than you, who redeemed for yourself a people, kicked out the gods of Egypt, and ransomed for yourself your own. You establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Why was David different than other kings and judges who were negligent in their responsibility, who were irresponsible 
it was because he knew what Asaph commanded was absolutely imperative, that he remember and proclaim the works of God, the testimony of Jacob, how he brought them out of Egypt, how he had been faithful. And David would tell the next generation, as it were, through his rule as much. David was fraught with sinful tendencies, as we know. Nevertheless, he was a picture of one to come. This one to come is pictured as a strong man and as a shepherd. In verse 64 or 65, Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. Dramatic, graphic language. Um, it's like being sh- uh, shaken awake, coming to your senses, sobering up with uh, an immediate motivation and ability to act. Um, imagine waking up from a bad dream. Um, or imagine waking up in the middle of the night and your house has been invaded. In the next room, you uh, hear an intruder beating down the door and you have your uh, trusty weapon of choice tucked beneath your mattress. How do you wake up? You rise up like a strong man from sleep, a strong man shouting because of what You are immediately intoxicated and overwhelmed with the thought that I must defend my family immediately against an intruder. And this is the idea of a sudden invasion of God's favor just when all hope was lost. And, and this is the way God has worked in the course of history. And people begin to lose hope. Even in First in, in Peter, I believe, it, it says, you know, will you delay forever? Even today, how, when will you come, O Lord? You know, the cry of the early church, Maranatha. Well, if it was their cry then, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Doesn't it even stand a reason more right now that, w- that we should be discouraged that 2,000 years God has uh, t- been tardy in returning to this planet? Well, understand what Asaph emphasizes. Sometimes there's a span of 400 years, 1,000 years, but then, at God's perfect and appointed time, he awakes from sleep, as it were, from a strong man, highly and immediately motivated to do something about the situation, and favor returns in a moment. And this is why in the New Testament it says, you must have your wick trimmed and your lamp full, because you know not the day or the hour, day or the hour of your own death or the Lord's return. It's a message of Asaph. It's a message of Christ. Stand with him, no matter the trial you're going through. Because at the moment when the Lord's patience has met its end and He intervenes, it is a sudden thing. And how many people in the course of history have been caught in the wake of His judgments on the wrong side of history? Not according to how the word, world judges it, but according to how the Word judges it. Now this idea of strongman is balanced in our text with shepherd. Uh, David is seen or is pictured here as one who is a servant who took from the sheep, uh, who was taken from the sheepfolds, and his the care that his vocation represented became a picture of aspects of his leadership, and so it is with the son of David, with Christ. So it is with the good shepherd, the Lord, described as such in Psalm 23. David shepherded his people as a model of Christ, shepherded Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. The strong man arose, you know, next week, culturally, may celebrate Palm Sunday, next Sunday. And there came a time when the strong man arose from his sleep, as it were, and in the fullness of time, Christ invaded. And there were very few, a precious few, who recognized him when he came. Christ revealed his glory in powerful works, in his miracles, and in tender loving kindness in his shepherding acts. And there was that moment that comes to my mind as a fulfillment 
of the, this uh, prefiguring in, of David in Matthew 21 at the triumphal entry. And as Jesus comes in, you may remember the praises of the people, including the children. <clears throat> it says the crowds that went, or let me back up, the, this is Matthew 21, 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks and he sat on them, excuse me. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Later, as he enters the area of the temple, the children are crying out there saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Religious leaders who were trained to recognize him were blinded by their idolatry. They were ignorant. Verse 16, they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, They're indignant, I should say. Yes, have you never heard out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. How will we recognize when God's favor returns suddenly? How will we find ourselves in His good graces when the time of His choosing intervenes? Well, the answers to these questions are all through Psalm 78. So let us be diligent to meditate, to take in those truths, so that when the Lord arrives unexpectedly, at the moment of His choosing, either upon our death or His return, as we find ourselves in this course of history, that we will find ourselves joining the children in the temple and the people along the roadway saying, Hosanna, blessed is He. Well, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory and honor and praises be to the Son of David. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message of your powerful scripture, which ties so many uh, glorious threads of your revelation together through the course of human events. We thank you that you are sovereign over these things and that you have written them down for our benefit. I pray that we would hide them in our heart, that we may not sin against you, and that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That we would, Lord, be found when upon your return faithful to your word and to your covenant. Equip us to do exactly this through the means that you've supplied us this day in our service. Help us to be diligent through the course of our week to pay attention to you and to seek you, Lord, and your kingdom and to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength. Lord, I pray if there's any here who have not placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone, that you would use today's message, the proclamation of your word, in their hearing and in their memory to draw them to the cross in repentance and faith. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.